Good morning. We're in uh, Psalm 110, today's Psalm 110. If you open your Bibles there, and then would you mind standing for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 110. Let us pray for God's presence and blessing upon our time together. Heavenly Father, may our praise bring you glory and remind us of your promises. We love you, Lord. We seek your presence and we worship you alone. We come before you today laying down our pride and our arrogance and confess our need for you. Lord, I confess that I am nothing without you. Thank you for our worship service today and for the message we're about to hear. May these words bring you glory and bless your holy name. We pray that we will hear the good news of this message with open hearts, and live lives that glorify you more and more each day. We do ask that your spirit would speak to us today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. A few years ago, uh, during the holiday season at Christmas, uh, we received on our doorstep some packages from Best Buy that we had not ordered or expected. By checking out the packages, my wife and I discovered that someone had stolen our credit card information and used it to purchase items from Best Buy. They were seeking to take advantage of a gift card program that Best Buy was offering. Best Buy had set up that Christmas the deal that if you purchased certain amounts of merchandise at certain price points, you would receive a digital gift card to your email address that you could use for uh, online gaming. And whoever this was that took advantage of us used our credit card number to purchase uh, certain amounts so they could receive the gift cards and then the merchandise was delivered to us. We contacted the police and the police came by and uh, took our report uh, we passed the merchandise to them. They closed the case by returning the merchandise to uh, Best Buy. We contacted our bank that our credit card number had been stolen. They issued us a new credit card. Best Buy uh, returned our money. And at the end of the day, the person who had stolen our credit card information ended up with digital gift cards, and Best Buy lost some money. And that's kind of how the situation turned out. See, often during this time of year, scams increase. Uh, the Better Business Bureau said that there are gift card scams, holiday 
job scams, fake charities, and you can look on the list on the screen. There are a variety of other scams that they ask us to be prepared for. Uh, earlier this week, uh, based on BBB's report, WGAL 8 News uh, sent out a warning about another scam that recently is going on, a new take on the delivery driver scam that they said we ought to be aware of. And the way that the scam kind of works is that the, uh, a, someone who's impersonating a delivery driver will send you a text message, and they'll claim that, hey, they have a gift to deliver or a package to deliver to your home. They'll say they're from a well-known company, Amazon, UPS, or FedEx, and they're trying to locate your house, and they can't find it. So if you could just text them back, they'll get things cleared up and get the package delivered to your house. If you decide to return the call, then they'll then explain that they have this gift, and they'll want to verify some personal information with you. They'll ask you for your name, Make sure they have the right address. They'll need you to give them that information. And if they can get away with it, they'll ask you to verify your credit card information as well. If you realize that you've not ordered anything, then they'll switch over and say, hey, this is from a friend or a relative who's trying to send this to you. So if you'll just verify your personal information, we can get this delivered to your home rapidly. Now, Brian, who was doing the news report from uh, News 8, gave three tips in dealing with the scam of this nature. One, keep track of your packages that you've ordered this season. This is a time when we're purchasing a lot of stuff. We may forget some of the things that we've ordered. Two, be skeptical of any unsolicited messages. So you get a text message that you don't know that you received. Somebody talking about a package probably should be leery of that. Third, when someone asks for your personal information on the phone, hang up. Now, during the Christmas season, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus to Bethlehem. And from our perspective, he is God's solution to the human problem of sin, which brings divine wrath, and also God's solution to set all of creation right in both heaven and on earth. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus appeared to be the Messiah. Messiah here meaning the divinely appointed king, which we know who was promised in the past. And we conclude from his teaching, uh, the various miracles that he did that were healings, uh, exorcisms, and other types of supernatural events that he performed, that he was the Messiah. After Jesus was crucified, though, by Roman authorities at the instigation of Jewish leaders, he seemed to be another imposter. And with his corpse, when it was laid into the tomb of a wealthy man, that felt like for those during that period of time that that was enough evidence to solidify that we had another imposter. If you could probably go back that weekend while Jesus' body lay in the tomb and speak to some of his disciples and ask them how they felt. And if we were to use some modern language today, probably some of them would say they felt like they had been scammed. It's painful to be scammed, scammed out of money, scammed out of your identity, but it's even worse to be scammed out of your soul. See, once your soul is lost, or once my soul is lost, if a soul is lost, there's no coming back for anyone. So how did the disciples know they had not been scammed? And for that matter, how do we know that we have not fallen prey to another soul-scamming scheme like many in our world? Well, on the Sunday after Jesus died and was buried, Cleopas and another disciple 
were making their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a village that was about seven miles away. That would be like if you were going to leave here today and travel out to Carnes on Allentown Boulevard. If you were heading over to the West Shore, you would get over to the Pennsylvania Bakery on Market Street. And while they're making this journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Jesus, who had been raised by God earlier that Sunday morning, joined the conversation. And this is what the scripture says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I believe that as he walked through the scriptures, probably in the Jewish order of the Bible, there was some point in which he reached the Psalms. And Psalm 110 was one of the things that he spoke about to Cleopas and the other disciple that was with him on the road. So in light of that idea, in light of the season, in light of what I just shared, I want to structure our message around this idea of avoiding being scammed with a delivery scam for the holiday season. So the first thing we want to do if we want to avoid being scammed spiritually is to know what was, we should expect to be delivered. Know what we expect to be delivered. Now, that's where Psalm 110 comes in for us because in conjunction with the previous verses we covered in the previous two weeks, we can get an idea of what God promised to deliver so we can match it up with who shows up to make sure that we have the right package. So let's take a look, take a look at what God promises in Psalm 110. Some have characterized this as what is called a royal psalm. By that, they simply mean that this psalm was written to or about the king of Israel, here specifically referring to one out of the Davidic line, or to or about David himself. Now, the psalm divides up nicely into two portions, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7. And if you were to look at the psalm, you'll notice that God gives oracles in verse 1 and verse 4. There he makes a declaration directly as God speaks directly to the king of of Israel. And then following each verse, there is uh, a statement of victory that the king will enjoy or experience because of God's support. So we learn from this verse about this mysterious figure that this king will serve as well, both a king, but also do something different, which is serve as a priest. Verse one, let's look again at verse one. Here God speaks to the king. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we know, even though the word in English is both used the same, from the usage of the first word, king, um, lord, uh, in the first verse, there, uh, the, it's the divine name that's being used. So we know it's God who is speaking to the king. And then thus, the second king, because it says my Lord, it refers to the king of Israel. Now, even though the word king is not used, we see in the psalm concepts related to kingship. Notice in the text, you'll see the words like scepter and rule, which refers to a king. And God does something for this king. He grants him the highest place of honor and authority that any king could have. He says to the king, sit at God's right hand. And in some sense, this means that the king will share in God's rule until God subjugates the king's enemies. Now, these ideas that are used here are images that are drawn from the ancient world, both right hand and footstool. Let me give you a little bit of background about both. 
One, when it deals with the right hand, scholars have said that the imagery here is of a fully armored warrior who would hold his weapon in his right hand and his shield on his left hand. And the person on the right of the king would have the privilege of defending him. And for a king to put someone there would be an affirmation of trust and therefore would be a position of honor if you're on the right hand. Similarly, the idea of footstool comes from ancient war imagery. So to make enemies a footstool in ancient Near Eastern is a metaphor for absolute control over others. Originally, a king who was victorious over other kings in battle, they would bring those kings, they would prostrate them on the floor, and the king would put his feet on their neck to show that he was ruling over them if he didn't kill them afterwards. So what we have here is a picture of exaltation of the Israelite king and a picture of victory. According to verse 2, God will extend the area of this king's rule and enforce the king's rule. We see that God gives a command to the king in verse 2. He says, rule in the presence of your enemies. One Old Testament scholar, when looking at the usage of the word rule here, says, this kind of rule indicates a rule that is imposed on people even if they resist. As we move into verse 3, we notice that the king's army will be willing soldiers who will support the king on the day of his power. Now, some will try to understand because the last words of verse 3 are pretty enigmatic there. So they take it to refer to a description of the soldiers. The idea here, the picture here is of young men that is full of strength, ready to do battle, and they are numerous. He has a great army with him. That brings us to verse 4, where, the king, where God makes the second oracle or pronouncement or oath to the king. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God says of this king, hey, you're going to also be a priest, but not just any priest. You will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is a mysterious figure who just pops into the pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 14 after Abraham has been successful in war. Now, he happens to be the king of Salem, which means he's the king of peace, and his name means king of righteousness. And he seems to be in a superior position to Abraham because Abraham pays him a tenth of everything that he has. He gives him a tithe. As we watch throughout Israelite history, generally uh, priests came out of the tribe of Levi and kings, for the most part, but not exclusively, out of the tribe of Judah. And often those two offices were not mixed. And when kings did try to often bleed over to the priestly office, they were disciplined by God. But in this case, because of God's promise, this king will serve not only as a king over the people, and he will rule over the people, but he will serve as a mediator between God and the people. In the words of the late Derek Kidner, we find at the end of the psalm an, in, an image of a prelude to world conquest. God's appointed king, king goes into battle with the kings of the earth and conquers them because the one who's actually fighting is God himself. Notice in verse 5 how the positions have switched. Now God is at the right hand of the king, which symbolizes protection. God and the king are working together as one to execute 
God's judgment on the nations. Now, this is not just another campaign of conquest, but God is judging the nations for their sin who have seek, sought to overthrow his rule, as we saw or we read about in Psalm 2. So on September 5th of this year, Rosemary Hain, a 39-year-old mother of four, went to Chipotle, and I often go to Chipotle for lunch. I just went this week to Chipotle for lunch in Ohio, and she went there to get a meal. But unlike me, there was a 17-year-old young lady helping her who was serving her, and she was not satisfied with the server's serving. So she called for the manager, and the manager met her at the checkout, and she communicated loudly to the manager her displeasure with how she had been served. And to make her point more clear to the manager, she took the chicken bowl that she had received and sought to shove it in the face of the manager. Now, Emily, who was the manager, quickly raised her arm in just the nick of time to stop the bowl from being smashed into her face. And then she walked angrily out of the store. Later, she was, of course, arrested because people with modern technology videotaped the whole thing, and you can watch it on YouTube. <laughs> when she was in court after the judge, Judge Gilligan, heard the case, he did something out of the ordinary. Now, initially, what he was going to do was to make her pay a fine that was due by state law and sentence her to a 180-day jail sentence with 90 days suspended. But then, for some reason, he changed his mind, and he offered her a concession. He said, hey, you can reduce your sentence by 60 days if you're willing to do this. I want you to consent to work 20 hours per week at a fast food restaurant for two months to which Hain agreed to this concession. And here was Judge Gilligan's reasoning. Why should the city taxpayers pay for her and feed her for 90 days in jail if I can teach her a sense of empathy? So the idea that's in this psalm is the kind of idea we see here. The, the kings of the earth have done wrong. In, in some sense, they have taken their chicken bowl and tried to shove it in God's face. And in response, God, with the King hands down just judgment upon them. The last verse indicates victory or refreshment for the king. So now we have an idea about what to expect to be delivered. We're ex we should expect a divinely appointed king from the line of David that God will honor in some sense by allowing him to sit at his right hand. Now, from the text, we don't know if this is a literal fulfillment or a metaphorical fulfillment because the psalm doesn't make it clear here. But the king's people will volunteer to serve him. The king will also serve as a priest. And God will use this king to judge the nations of the world. That's what should be delivered. So the second question that we want to ask to avoid a scam or what we want to do is to inspect what was delivered. Inspect what was delivered. What did we receive in Jesus of Nazareth? What did we receive in Jesus of Nazareth? Others like Docetius the Samaritan and Simon Bar Kokhba claimed to be Messiahs shortly after the time of Jesus and proved to be false. They died and they did not achieve the goal that they were seeking. In our terms, they were scammers. So how do we know Jesus is not just another spiritual scammer? 
Well, the writers of the New Testament saw in Psalm 110 that this was pointing directly to Jesus of Nazareth, since it is quoted or alluded to, as some scholars have said, more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Here are a few of the references that are listed. I won't quote them to you. If you want to, you can use your phone to take a picture and look them up later. I'm going to touch on just a couple in a moment as we build the case for Jesus. So, first of all, does Jesus of Nazareth match up with the kingly description that we see in Psalm 110? Let me start off with some called the boring parts of the Bible. And maybe you would never say that out loud to anyone as you're reading the Bible because you know that would be, well, ungodly probably. <laughs> but the boring stuff, most people think, they just treat it like it's boring, the genealogies. When you get to them, you're like, do I really have to read this today? Let me just skim it real quick and get to the next chapter. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 record the important information of Jesus' genealogy. Now, what's important for the genealogy as it relates to Jesus is that he's born into the right family. He is a Davidic heir to the throne. And unlike the majority of humanity, an angel corroborates his claim to the throne. Gabriel, as we heard earlier, says this to Mary, and this is why this is important, because it's about him being born in the right family. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I know sometimes we can't trust people's testimony, depending on their character. But I think we can trust an angel's testimony. Based on Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Jesus was also born in the right place, Bethlehem. Jesus, in his ministry, was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, just like David had been anointed with the Holy Spirit when he was anointed as king over Israel. And that's why he was able to slay Goliath. After overcoming the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And he preached the kingdom of God and went about doing good works. He did miracles and he cast out demons. And Jesus thought of himself as the Messiah, as his own self-identity. He said this in the passage that we often quote here in John chapter 4 to the woman who was a Samaritan. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. With Zechariah 9, 9 in view, Jesus not only understood his identity, but he made a public claim to the throne of David when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, of course, we know that the Jewish leaders did not accept his claim to kingship, but Pilate validated his claim in his crucifixion. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and others discovered that Jesus, of, that God's Supreme Court in Jesus's case had overturned the verdict of this lower court and thus vindicated Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the divinely appointed king. 
Acts 1 informs us that the disciples witnessed Jesus ascend back into heaven, and later Stephen saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God just before his death. In light of all these events, the writer of Hebrews sums it up this way. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And as you heard, as Sheila prayed earlier out of Psalm chapter two, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and on the earth. Does Jesus match up with the kingly description as we see in Psalm 110? The answer is yes. Jesus fulfills the kingly description in a greater way than we could expect. He literally sat down at the right hand of God. Does Jesus of Nazareth match up with the priestly description that we see in Psalm 110? Well, when Jesus died for our sins on the cross, as Sheila prayed, he acted as our priest by offering a single sacrifice to God on behalf of people to deal with sin forever. And Jesus thus accomplished what no other priest was able to do. Listen to the writer of how Hebrews reasons this out. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of a true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But these sacrifices, but I'm sorry, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But notice what he says about Jesus' sacrifice. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Jesus offered a better sacrifice that only had to be offered once. The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain how Jesus falls into the line of the order of Melchizedek when he writes, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord descended from the tribe of Judah, and in connection with these, that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Through Jesus Christ's resurrection, Jesus possesses an indestructible life, and that fact is what connects him to the order of Melchizedek's priesthood. He's the only one who has that. As a result of Jesus living forever, the writer of Hebrews says this, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he lives or he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason that we can draw near to God is because Jesus is not dead, but alive, and he lives forever. So every generation of Christians can always draw near to God because Jesus is always sitting 
at the right hand of God. And it's, re- it's because of this reality that John says something to us when we find ourselves in need of a representative before God. John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you might not sin or may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When you sin and you find yourself falling short of God's glory, when you have failed in your life to live up to the expectations of God, the reason you can go to God is because Jesus is sitting there to advocate for you by his blood. So the answer to the question is yes. Jesus fulfills the priestly description. Lastly, will Jesus of Nazareth judge the world? Will he bring the kings of the earth and all nations to nothing? And will he set up God's rule on the earth? Well, Paul answers this in a very succinct way. Many years ago, Paul said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's only one man in history that God has raised from the dead as new creation with an indestructible life. That solitary figure is Jesus of Nazareth. The answer to the question is yes. Jesus is coming and he is going to judge all of the nations and kings of this world. Let me sum it up for you in the words of an old Pepsi commercial from the 1990s that Ray Charles did, you got the right one, baby. (laughs) Now that we know what to expect, we've checked out the delivery We found Jesus of Nazareth to be the authentic kingly gift from God. We have one more thing we need to do. Since we know we're not being spiritually scammed out of our souls as others are, we need to receive God's gift. For many in this room, you have repented of your sins and you continue to repent of them. You trusted in Christ and you continue to trust in him for salvation. So receiving the gift means something different for you than it does for a non-Christian. We find our application there in verse 3 of Psalm 110 for us. The text says, or the writer, perhaps David in this case, as a New Testament writer, seemed to say it was David who wrote this psalm, speaking about the Messiah. He says that the Messiah's people will volunteer to serve him in his power. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, you're the king's people. So here are a few suggestions for you to offer yourself willingly to the king. Nothing new, something that we've already mentioned in the past and past sermons, but it's not so much that we need new information as it just means we just need reminding of what is the right thing to do. Here are a few thoughts that you've heard before. Make the goal of your life to fear God and keep his commandments as Jesus has given them instead of living for yourself. Let your loyalty to Jesus influence your work ethic or how you conduct the business that you own. Don't be like the world. Pray and study your Bible. We've said that a lot, but that's key in your spiritual development and in mind. Give thought to how you're using your time on earth. It's precious. Once it's gone, 
is gone. You don't get it back. Do good works while you have time. What opportunities has God given you to serve him in your life? Each of us, it is different. Enjoy what God has given you, but be mindful while you're enjoying what God has given you to make sure that you fulfill God's will in the time that you have on planet Earth. If you've had children recently or you're raising children, consider teaching them a Christian worldview and pass on to them the values that Jesus has for his people, not just the worldly values that you've picked up along the way. And if you're a grandparent, the same goes for you. If you have adult children, counsel them out of God's word. And don't just simply tell them what God says, but model it in your own life. Intercede for those who are far from God. Don't fail to get on your knees and call on God's name in their behalf if they have strayed from God. Yes, you cannot control their behavior anymore, but God is able to change their heart. If you're single, as I was for many years, don't waste the time, as I did in some occasions. Use it to serve God while you're waiting on him to provide you a spouse. Remember, God is able to give you a spouse. He has the power. He created Adam and he created Eve. I'm sure he can get you one. <laughs> Remember how we treat people as importantly, as extremely important to God. That's why Jesus commands us time and time again, love others. Maybe you're here today and you're caring for elderly parents. Seek to obey God's command in those cases. It's not always easy to care for honorary parents, especially if you've had a tumultuous relationship with them over the years. But seek to obey God because you belong to the King. Those who are married, be careful how you conduct your relationship with your spouse. Seek to obey God's commands, which include love and respect. And if you're married here, you've got to watch your heart. You've got to be careful and mindful of the things that are going on in your heart toward your spouse, because if they're not addressed, if you don't deal with those things, they will grow over time into bitterness and malice, and you'll find yourself making decisions because you've not addressed those issues. And marriages break down. You've got to watch what's going on in your heart towards your spouse. That's why the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Care for those in society who do not enjoy the same privileges of you. The Bible says that God has a special place for widows and orphans and the poor. And we would add to that those who do not have the same abilities that you have. Use your finances in a way that demonstrates that you recognize that you are a steward and not an owner. You believe that ultimately in this life, what you have has been given by God. If you don't believe me, when you pass away, Someone else will take the stuff you've gained in this life. And some of those people may not be as wise as you were. And what you took a life to earn, they may blow in a few years. We're just stewards in this life. Let me close with this. 
In my community group this past week, we heard a moving testimony from Dr. Bruce Wilkinson, with our, which I want to share with you. And he was talking about with us in our community group the origin of his ministry, some things that God did to provide and show his power. He talked about how uh, he and six other friends of his, God, had moved on their hearts. They were all in various places in ministry. Some were professors, some were pastors at churches, and God moved on their heart to move to the same city and form what we today know as Walk Through the Bible. And one of the first needs that they had was they had a need for a building. So his friend, Bert, and him took time to search out a a building. And after they found one, they employed the services of a real estate agent by the name of Richard. And Rich told them that they, when they found this one building, that, hey, uh, it was on sale for $130,000. Considering the size, the property of the building, uh, to get it at $130,000 was a steal of a deal, and they needed to buy it immediately before somebody else took it off the market. Well, well they were in the car, and they were praying, and uh, so it was Bert, Dr. Wilkinson, and Rich all in the car together. And uh, Bert and Dr. Wilkinson said, I don't think that's what we want to offer, so let, let, let's pray about it. And they each independently prayed and wrote down on some slips of paper the amount that they felt like God wanted them to offer, and when they handed the pieces of paper in, the numbers matched up. And so Rich, they gave the offer to him, which he thought was ridiculous because they said, hey, we want to offer the, to them 37500 for the building. Now, of course, Rich, as a real estate agent, for those of you who are real estate agents, thought it would be embarrassing to go in there when they were offering it already at a deal for 130 And then you're going to go in and say, I want it for $37,500. But they said, go in and offer the deal. So he did. And to his surprise and amazement, Rich came back and said, they accepted the offer. With one condition, you have 30 days to make the payment. So they started to pray about this, and as time was running out for that 30 days, Dr. Wilkinson had to go out to a conference in California. And while he was out there, he was speaking that week uh, as a representative of Dallas Theological Seminary with some other professors, and he was talking, and he was just sharing that week, and he wasn't, it wasn't a fundraising idea, so he didn't really get into it, but somewhere in the week when he was teaching, uh, as he was talking about God doing miracles and God providing miracles, he mentioned the building but didn't say what the need was uh, about the building, and so he just went talking about it, and they went on through the week. And so that, that night, you know, the days were coming to the end. It was at the end of that week that they were going to have to pay, and it was Thursday night. So they prayed. He and his wife, Darlene, they got down and asked God, tomorrow's the last day, Lord. we got to make this uh, payment on the building. We don't have any money, uh, and, and we need the money to pay for the building. So he and his wife were sitting outside on a bench on Friday afternoon that the money was due, and they saw a couple, an older couple at that time, because, I mean, Dr. Wilkins is old now, but he was young back then. Uh, and he was sitting out on a bench, and they were, he and his wife were sitting out there, not knowing what to do, not knowing how God was going to provide, and the hours were ticking away. They were just hours away from the deadline. And so Sam and Vera, this older couple who had been at the conference that week, walked up to them. And as they were walking up, they, he had in his hand a brown paper bag that was stuffed with something. Now, as Dr. Wilkinson looked over, he saw them approaching, and they had a smile on their face as they were approaching him, and he thought to himself, God's got the money in the bag. That dude's got the cash right there in the bag. I'm about to get the money. Hey, man, God's going to deliver right now. Sam and his wife, Vera, came up and sat on a bench next to them and said, hey, we were moved by uh, what you shared this week, and uh, we want to give you a precious gift. And he handed him over the bag, and he said, 
These are filled with pecans from our yard that we want to give you. We love you, and we so appreciate you. In that moment, Dr. Wilkinson's heart sank because those pecans weren't gold. But after he had given him a bag of pecans, Sam said to Dr. Wilkinson, he said, hey, uh, you know, in one of the illustrations this week, you mentioned about that building. Tell me a little bit more about that building. How much money do you need? Told him the amount that they had offered. He said, well, do you need some money to fix up the building, too? And he said, yeah. Told him the amount, and so the total came out to $40,000. As soon as Dr. Wilkinson said that number, Sam became extremely emotional. He looked at his wife, and he said, sweetheart, this is our big miracle. This is our big miracle. And he began to explain to Dr. Wilkinson just 30 days earlier to the day there was someone who knocked on his door about a piece of property that he owned. And he said to him, are you willing to sell this piece of property? And he made him a generous offer. And they sold it 30 days before to the day. Do you know the amount that he had sold it for and he had in the bank? It was exactly $40,000. And when they got the money, they prayed to God that 30 days earlier. They said, even though, God, we want to use this money for our retirement, if you need the money before we retire, you're welcome to use it for your purposes in the world. And they said, this is our last day, and this is your last day. And this is when God has shown up, and we want to give to you God's money so you can use it for his purposes. Brothers and sisters, your soul is safe with Jesus. You've not been spiritually scammed. So this Christmas season and beyond, you can live like Jesus is the authentic king that was promised in Psalm 110. So live your life like that this Christmas and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And may we live in such a way. Lord, we thank you for what you promised so we can know who you've delivered to us is the real deal. We thank you for what we find in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that our souls are not being spiritually scammed as others have been deluded in this world and they're losing their souls because they've been scammed. I pray, Father, instead that you would help us to live in light of this truth about who we received in Jesus Christ, that we would honor him with our lives, that we would serve him willingly, that we would proclaim him boldly to those who do not know him. We thank you for the opportunity to serve and to offer up our gifts through this offering to serve your purposes in the world. We recognize that, Lord, what we have has come from you. You're the one who gives us the power to get wealth. It's not by our ingenuity, not by our skill, not by our mental ability. You have kept us and granted us these privileges. Thank you. As we offer up our gifts, and perhaps we've done it already this week or at some other time, would you bless it to serve your purposes in the world? May we honor you and glorify you with all we do. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.